Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Work and labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brothers greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we love you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that we find in it, the transformative power of your word, Lord, and how it has such effect in our lives if we would only submit to its truth. So, Lord, even now I pray that each person here would have the courage to submit to the truth of your word, Lord God, um, and not take exception with it, but, Father, just submit fully to the truth and be transformed as a result. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So again, uh, the closing remarks of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, if you recall from a, a few weeks back, we might be tempted to chalk this little passage up to a few personal notes, really of little consequence for us. Um, and, uh, you know, as if this part of God's word wouldn't be inspired like the rest of it, you know, um, that, of course, would be making a mistake because just like we learned in that former passage from a few weeks back, there was a wealth of wisdom tucked away in those verses that just seemed personal or inconsequential. Uh, the passage here is no less the same. If I may draw your attention once again to verse 14, this is really the foundational statement that kind of everything follows. And here's what he said, quote, Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Now look at verse 24 there toward the end. Paul says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So today's message is sandwiched in between those two statements of love, that everything you do should be done in love, and then Paul stating his love for the church and all those there at Corinth. Like bookends, his last remarks once again will focus the church's attention to the purpose of this whole letter of 1 Corinthians, that of which they were sorely lacking in that church, and that was love. They lacked love. And I'm truly baffled at this, which, you know, a church so early on, getting things so wrong, so messed up, missing the entire point of their purpose in being a church and their entire point and purpose in the world. And, and if we recall what Jesus himself said, the two greatest commandments that could be really boiled down or summed up into two statements, love God and love others, right? Pretty simple for us, love God and love others. And to review what we learned a few weeks ago, the wording here leaves absolutely no wiggle room when he says, let all that you do be done in love. I don't know if you know the definition of the word all, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Let all that you do be done in love. And the entirety of the rebuke of the book of 1 Corinthians can be summed up 
in his beautiful poetic rebuke in chapter 13 that we call the love chapter, often quoted at weddings, but it's actually a, a, a chapter of rebuke for that church that was lacking, so lacking in the simplicity of their love. So their immaturity, their jealousy, their conflict, their factions, their lack of moral fortitude, their apathetic attitudes towards one another, their erroneous theology, every single bit of the problems and issues that the church at Corinth was facing could be pointed to the, their lack of love, okay? All summed up by that. And both toward Jesus, their love for Jesus and God the Father, their disrespect of the Holy Spirit, and their lack of love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Love complements and balances everything out. It even softens the pain of correction and rebuke. And make no mistake, correction and rebuke in the context of the local church is an act of love. Just like when you discipline or instruct your children when they're little, you do it because you love them. If they're running around in a parking lot without holding your hand or if they run out in the middle of the street without looking both ways, it would not be loving to just let them go and not correct them in that, especially a life-threatening situation. Spiritual matters are eternal. We can't just let, uh, let go of our responsibility of correcting and instructing and even rebuking when it calls for it because of the spiritual dangers involved. Amen? Remember the command of 1 Peter 4.8? If, if you take notes, jot that down, 1 Peter 4.8, and you can revisit this later at home. Above all, he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, there's a lot of problems with people just being people. But if you love one another and you know how to act in love, then a lot of those problems can be dealt with immediately if you would just be self-sacrificing. Sometimes choose not to say the things that you really want to say or act a certain way that you really want to act. You don't have to do that. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So as we continue here, as Paul closes, he does not let his foot off the gas at all concerning their need to act in love toward one another. We're supposed to be known by our love for the Lord and the way we express our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, also for those who don't even know him. You know, if you, you want to show people that we love them, then treat them well and always point to Christ. Always be a good reflection of him. You know, words are cheap and love itself is a doing thing. It's not just talking about it. It's a doing thing. Love is serving. Love is sharing. And that's exactly what we're about to discover here in Paul's closing remarks. In fact, we can isolate about seven, seven different things here in these verses that will define for us a doing kind of love. Like we can look at it here and see an example in the lives of these folks and the, and the people that Paul mentions. And we can let that be our example as well for you and I. We don't have to be confused or wonder what we're supposed to be doing. God's word is very clear. And here are these seven, and we're going to go through them one by one, but I just to kind of lay them out there for you. Uh, love shares the gospel. Love shares the gospel. Love serves one another. Love submits to one another. Love supplies companionship. Love spotlights faithfulness. Love shows hospitality. And love showers affection. And this is the way that the body of Christ is supposed to uh, conduct themselves 
all things in love. And we're going to go through these one by one. Number one, love shares the gospel. Love shares the gospel. Look at verse 15. Now I exhort you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. In chapter 15, I devoted a good portion of time explaining their cultural understanding of what first fruits are. And I think most of you guys here remember that, but for those who were not here, let me explain this. There, uh, there was a final portion of here in this letter that Paul mentions again, the first fruits, and I want to explain that. So just before the entire harvest of a crop would come in, they would go out and they would gather a small portion of the crop, and they called that small portion the first fruits. And this portion was the first of the full harvest and would be offered to the Lord, but it also served as a down payment or a guarantee that the full harvest, the rest of the harvest, would come. So in speaking of the resurrection, Paul explained that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And that was a guarantee that all who are in Christ will one day be resurrected, the full harvest of the resurrection, you see? So because he is the only one that has been resurrected and has received a glorified body, he is the first fruits of the, resurrec of the resurrected or the resurrection. So here Paul mentions the household of Stephanus, which means his family, his servants, his employees, his slaves, whoever was involved in his household at that time, the, this was the household of Stephanus, and Paul was saying that they were the first fruits. Well, the first fruits of what? They were the first fruits of the harvest that came from the gospel being preached, from Paul's efforts in preaching the gospel in those early days in the church. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 1.16, 1 Corinthians 1.16, we covered this in our study. We learned that Stephanus was one of the few converts that Paul actually baptized personally. He said he didn't baptize a lot of people personally, but Stephanus was one that he did. And it was probably because it was so early on in uh, the early church and in his ministry. And Paul expressed his love for God, his love for people, and his devotion to sharing the gospel message. And Paul became the example for all believers. The household of Stephanus was the beginning of what was yet to come in spreading the gospel and the birth of the church as it spread all over that region out there. And this love and concern for the eternal well-being of others is what drove the early church to go and to preach and to share the good news. It was love. And in the first chapter of Thessalonians, Paul showers praise on the believers there in Thessalonica for their love that was in action. Once again, the early church. And I want to read that. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 2 through uh, 8 real quick. And we'll just read through it. We're not going to break it down. But I think you'll see kind of these key words in here when we're talking about work and labor and hope and, and love and power and, and assurance and being imitators of Paul and imitators of the apostles. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 8. We give thanks to God always for you, all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father, knowing, brothers, beloved by God, your election, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance 
just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So Paul's saying, as a man of God and men of God, we proved ourselves right in front of your eyes, okay? Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. So we imitate uh, others who are faithful in service, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Listen, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. They were faithful in proclaiming the gospel, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Essentially, everywhere you went, you were preaching the gospel. Isn't that cool? So that we have nothing, need of nothing to say, or we have no need to say anything. Meaning, I don't need you to instruct you any further. You get it. You get it. You went out and you did it, okay? So this church had a testimony that reached far and wide. Why? Well, we see that there's a process here in this passage, and, uh, and it should be our model as well as the body of Christ. If we love the way that Jesus Christ loved, with him as our example, and then we go and share the way that Paul did in preaching the gospel, with Paul as our example, then we'll be a church like this church in Thessalonica where we're unafraid to share the gospel, and we're imitating Christ, and we're imitating Paul, and we're imitating all the faithful churches out there who have been so faithful over the years. Our love will drive us as well. Our testimony will reach others with the good news, and we too can be an example to any other churches that follow in our footsteps. So there's no doubt that if you love people, you'll have great concern for their eternal well-being. In Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, Paul again shows us his genuine example of a loving heart broken for his lost kinsmen, for his Jewish brothers. In chapter 9 verses 1 through 3, uh, Romans 9, 1 through 3, I'm going I'm to read this here for you. Paul says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. His brokenness here is palpable, describing it as great sorrow and unceasing grief, wishing that if he could save his brothers, he himself would trade and be accursed on behalf of them. What a powerful statement, kind of exposing what was in his heart. And did you know that Paul here is almost echoing the words of Moses when Moses cried out for his people? And he cried out this, I'm paraphrasing, but these people have sinned, God, yet now, if you will, forgive them. And if not, I pray that you blot me out of the book you have written as well. It was, it was Paul even echoing Moses' heart as he pleaded for his own people as well. How much more so is the heart of God willing that none of his sheep should perish, but all would come to repentance? You and I have no idea who has ears to hear, who has eyes to see, and therefore uh, we must go as he has called us to go and proclaim the gospel message to everyone, to every creature, the Bible says. It leaves no stone Unturned, And in my study this week, I read these words I found to be powerful. Evangelism is the sob of God. Evangelism is the anguished cry of Christ over a doomed Jerusalem. Evangelism is the heartbroken cry of Paul that wished he were accursed. 
Evangelism is the travail of John Knox praying, Give me Scotland for Christ or I shall die. Evangelism is the weeping prayers of every parent in the middle of the night for their unsaved child yet to know Christ Jesus as their Lord. My prayer is that this church would have a heart, a true heart for the lost, that we would be burdened. Lord, do not let our lack of love for you uh, be exposed uh, in our in our ineffectiveness or inability, uh, inability or unwillingness to go out and share the gospel with those who are lost. We are to do all we do in love. And make no mistake, love in action shares the gospel. Amen? Number two, love serves one another. Love serves one another. The household of Stephanus was the first fruits, and they served as an example for all of the following believers to imitate. Uh, look what it says, quote, and that they have devoted themselves for service to the saints. What an example. They came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and immediately they devoted themselves to serving the rest of the body of Christ. And these two words, devoted themselves, are powerful words in the Greek. It means they devoted themselves entirely on their own initiative. They were not forced to do so, okay? They made the decision to be servants, and then they were servants. They saw the need in the church. They devoted themselves to taking care of those needs, and they saw to it that the people who needed serving were being served. And this was not an act of someone, as I said, appointed to a powerful position within the church. This was not action flowing from a need of one of these folks to be seen or elevated, right? So that people would look at this guy or these, these people and say, wow, look at how spiritual they are, right? Which we see so often these days. And actually we see the example of, of those at the church at Corinth. This was a genuine act of Christian love for the brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And with Christ as their example, humble, genuine, submissive service then followed. Again, it's not something that any of us should do to be seen. It's not something we should do to be rewarded here on this earth. And once you do that, once your motives are wrong, you might as well not even do it in the first place because you're just you're building up wood, hay, and stubble as opposed to gold, silver, and precious stones as Paul so eloquently taught us about the judgment seat, the Bama seat of Christ. Um, again, we should always do what we do in service for God's glory alone and not the recognition of men. In John chapter 12, verse 26... John 12, 26, Jesus says this, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. Don't look for recognition from anybody except God the Father. We just went through Paul's instruction to the Corinthian believers regarding this very thing and the nature of spiritual gifts in the church, right? You guys recall this whole study on spiritual gifts. And many of us have, ha have taken these spiritual gifts tests over the years. And uh, it's kind of like a little personality test, and it tells you whether or not you're, you know, what your supposed spiritual gifts are. And I would like to, if you would allow me, challenge your thinking a little bit on that based on what Scripture actually says. Um, you might think that you have this gift and it's a lifelong spiritual gift because you took a quiz. Well, Scripture says, um, first of all, your gifts are not for you. They're not for you. And they are not about you. And the purpose of a spiritual gift that God gives you is to serve others 
period. That's it. The whole purpose you have a spiritual gift is for the sake of others. Your spiritual gift is not for your own building up or edification. It's to build up everyone else around you. And second, because it's about Christ's local body and not for you, your gifts will most likely change throughout your lifetime given whichever local church you're a part of. So if you're part of a local church that has specific needs, spiritual gifts needs, then the Lord could very well gift you in a certain way to apply toward the building up of the saints in that local church. So where you might be in one church and have one spiritual gift, the Lord can switch up and give you a whole different toolbox for a different church in the context of that local church. Amen? Does that make sense to everybody? So there are some gifts that we have that are, they seem across the board, they're just gifts that we have. But the, the whole point of spiritual gifts are for the building up of the church. And when one uh, part of the local body is built up and fortified in that area, it wouldn't be inconceivable for God to give you a different gift in order to serve in a different way. And, you know, there are those in the church who clearly have more visible gifts, some who serve the body in more permanent upfront roles like elders and deacons and teachers and, and so forth. They're, they're often like where I am or up in front. Uh, however, every single one of us are called to serve in the local church. And in fact, that word devoted, uh, tasso, in Greek is often translated as addicted. You have an addiction to service in the context of the local church, okay? In other words, my love for my brothers and sisters compels me to serve in such a degree that I must serve. Like, I'm addicted to it. If you just think about an addiction that you might have, whether it be to Dr. Pepper or chocolate or I don't know, whatever that you have an addiction to, it's like, I got to have that. Well, in the context of the local church, you know, you should have this devotion to the brothers and sisters in Christ within your local body and showing them love and pointing them to Christ and building them up. Okay, It's important to understand the importance of the context of the local church that gathers and worships regularly. And I, I would say this is an area that has really opened my eyes in studying verse by verse is the importance of the church. The New Testament church is one comprised of pastors and elders and deacons and teachers and a body made of hands and feet and ears and noses and and you understand that's the, that's the uh, correlation that, that Paul made. And there is New Testament instruction as to the importance of the church operating and conducting themselves according to, as I said before, what Scripture actually dictates. And there's a semblance of this as we gather with friends. There's a semblance of this as we gather with family. But there is no substitute for the local church and what Christ has made and given us in his church. He has designed it. He is building it. And he has dictated that it would be built and, and edified until that glorious consummation of all things, the eternal state in our eternity future. Okay, that's the glorious day that we all look ahead to. Let's keep that in mind as we consider all of these. Number three, number three, love submits to one another. Love submits to one another. And not a single one of us is exempt in this requirement of submission within the local church. We submit to one another. Uh, submission is a dirty word these days, isn't it? We don't like that. And Paul uses Stephanus and his household as an example here and others who are like him. And in fact, we're to submit, it says, to all who serve. Look at verse 16. 
that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Okay? So people who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, who manifest the fruit of the Spirit, they submit to one another. But what's our attitude in the flesh? I love the saying that kids often say, you're not the boss of me, right? That's our, that's our flesh, isn't it? That's our attitude. So the moment that someone, you know, asks us to do something or maybe puts it in a way that we don't necessarily like and they ask us to, to submit in some way, we kind of bow up at that and we have that you're not the boss of me, who do you think you are kind of attitude. But Scripture makes it crystal clear that as Christ was our example of the ultimate submission, he was God and he came here and gave his life for all of us. The ultimate example of submission. If we love him, God's word tells us we'll do the same. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Ephesians 5, 21 says, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's our godly honor of Jesus Christ that drives our willingness to actually submit and be accountable to one another. And in fact, this is how God's word describes genuine spirituality. All right? Now I want to I kind of point out something here once again that I have in the past, but it's so important given today's environment. Many Christians these days want to be seen as super spiritual and that they've got a leg up on the rest of us boring kind of -of run-of-the-mill everyday Christians, right? They are just so much more spiritual than the rest of the believers. And the reason they can claim such things is because they have redefined what it means to be spiritual, And when you get to come up with your own definition of what spirituality is, I mean, that becomes very convenient. They claim that they are much closer to God than the rest of us, and their assertions are conveniently accommodated by the fact that the evidence of their spiritual status is all experiential, right? It's all something that they've experienced, and quite frankly, there's no way to validate it the way that the apostles were validated or the way that the early church... Uh, leaders were validated, and I believe that God wants us to be able to validate the, the leadership in the church by their actions, by their heart, so on and so forth, and experiential evidence is no evidence at all. That's, it's essentially just hearsay. They, they believe they've tapped into a power source, and if we only knew what they knew, or if we only felt what they felt, we would understand, right? I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience, from conversations that I've had with many people in the past. And I, I recall one of, the, one of the times when I was much younger than I am today and we were raising money. We did a change drive to go to um, Cuernavaca, Mexico on a mission trip. And I walked into this business and, and I said, we're just collecting loose change that anybody might have. And she said, well, I would give to you, but you're not plugged into the power source. And I'm, and I'm like, well, what do you mean the power source? And she said, well, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, yeah, I've got some change, but I can't give it to you because you're not plugged into the power source. And I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I, uh, I didn't realize I wasn't plugged into the power source. And, uh, but there's this idea that they've tapped into this power source and, uh, and that they've got things figured out and they've, they've got this different level of spirituality than the rest of us have, Okay. But the Bible tells us that true spirituality or walking and living in the power of the Holy Spirit is actually defined by the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It's tangible, it's real, and it's, evident, it, it's evidence for all to see. There's no denying it. 
the Holy Spirit, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit is, is uh, shown in our humility and our willingness to submit ourselves to God, but also to submit ourselves in the local body. We labor together toward the same eternal goals. If you look at 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, here's what Paul, or I mean, here's what Peter says to the younger men. Younger men, likewise, be subject. There it is again. Submit yourself to your elders, to the older men. And all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The key is humility. Verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Remember, it's God who exalts. It's God who rewards. And if we humble ourselves now and submit now, then that reward is, is awaiting us in the future, and it's going to be given by the Father and Christ himself. In fact, let me just give you a little bit of a, a hint here about something I'd love for you to look up. If you want to be encouraged, look up these two passages and compare them this week. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning around verse 18. Ephesians 5, around verse 18. And Colossians chapter 3, beginning around verse 16. Those two passages of Scripture pay close attention to how Paul defines these two things. Number one, walking in the Spirit. What follows when he says walk in the Spirit? And he gives that directive that we should walk in the Spirit, okay? You want to know what it means to walk in the Spirit? Then read what follows that. And the second one is letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in you in the book of Colossians. Read all of that and, and that chapter, and you'll also see what it means to, number one, walk in the Spirit. Number two, let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. And I think that will encourage you this week. Both describe what it means to be truly filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Word of God. And again, um, both require submission, and you'll see that it's encouraging. So if we're, all, if we're all to do what we do in love, then we must submit to one another in humility. And it's just that crystal clear in Scripture. Number four, love supplies companionship. Love supplies companionship. Look at verse 17 and 18 there. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. So if the local church truly reflects evidence that the Spirit of God is at work and Christ is indeed building the church, the people in that church will be in genuine fellowship as loving companions, laboring together. We're friends with one another. It's that simple. We actually love each other. We're friends. We care about each other. And we're going to be part of one another's lives. There's togetherness. We celebrate life events together, the birth of a new baby, marriages, all these things. We, we pray in times of sorrow and mourning and we cry together. We're broken over sin together. We rejoice together in genuine growth and life change in the church. And again, we seek Christ together and we bear one another's burdens. That's what the church is meant to be. It was never meant to be a social gathering that you go to once a week for a couple hours and that's that. That is not what Christ is building his church for. It's so much more than that. There's true, genuine companionship. Like the two fellow travelers, I don't know if you've read the, the, the wonderful story, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's masterful work. He wrote it while he was in prison, but the main character, Christian, and his best friend, Faithful, and both of them are making their way 
to the celestial city and just their adventures as they make their way and the, the trouble that they get in and, and how the Lord delivers them and, and finally they make their way and finally, spoilers, they, they get to the celestial city. So will you and I, by the way. This is the gift of Christ's church. The church is the gift, companionship to his church. It's, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more you give, the more you will get in the context of the local church. There's great joy in the journey as we grow in love and serve together. And there just simply is no substitute for the body of Christ and for the church. There's no substitute. Here in our passage, these three men supplied something that was in dire need. Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus were Paul's companions. And what was the result? Paul said they refreshed his spirit and they refreshed the spirits of the Corinthian believers. And this shouldn't be overlooked. We shouldn't just read and gloss over it. You know what it means to you to be able to spend time with someone that you care about and you actually consider that person to be someone who is refreshing to you, right? You spend time with them and you just feel better after you've spent some quality time with them. And you feel refreshed. Um, Some folks in our lives, we are meant to refresh them and build them up. We are meant to pour ourselves out to them. But what a joy when we come across someone who actually refreshes us like a cold uh, spring bubbling up out of the ground. I think about, you know, the mountains a lot. I grew up in the mountains, and I, when, I, when I was very small, probably five years old, my dad took me up in the mountains on Casper Mountain in Wyoming, and he showed me this open field, and right in the middle of this field was this spring just bubbling up out of the ground. And uh, that was the first time I ever remember, like, cupping my hands and drinking this ice, almost ice-cold water just coming up so clean, so refreshing. And that's what I picture here, that there are people in our lives that are refreshing to us in that same way. And the bottom line is that this church is his place, and these are his people. This is God's family. And you will be refreshed by one another as you're willing to submit and refresh others as well. And we should all pray that the Lord would use us to refresh one another, to charge one another's batteries, if you will, to be givers and not takers. And if every week, every one of us came in here and purposed to be refreshing to our brothers and sisters in Christ, then every single one of us would have refreshed someone and every single one of us would leave refreshed by others. That's how it works. So if we come and purpose to do that, every Sunday afternoon, we'll leave this place feeling good about the body of Christ and our service together as we seek to fulfill the call of his kingdom. Every single one of you, well, I'm sorry, Paul here, of course, mentions these three men who go above and beyond to pour into his life and the lives of those in that local church. And he shines the spotlight on them and gives the church instruction about them, which leads us to our fifth point this morning. Number five, love spotlights faithfulness. Love spotlights faithfulness. And I hear a lot these days about not putting men on a pedestal, okay? And we talk a lot about that. Uh, We should be careful not to engage in people worship. And that's all true. We shouldn't uh, shouldn't make more of men than what men are and understanding that, that we're all prone to wander and we are all prone to fail, amen? However, this only takes place when there's a lack of maturity on the part of the one who puts men in the place of such exaltation. 
We know this is unhealthy. It's an unhealthy form of idolatry. It leads to factions and infighting in the church. If we remember the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. He says some of them are saying, I'm of Paul. Some are saying, I'm of Apollos. And they were kind of uh, dividing up and segregating into different groups of who they thought. My dad can beat up your dad kind of a mentality, right? And mature believers can tell the difference between people worship and what Paul is actually instructing the church to do here. He says, therefore, recognize such men. Therefore, recognize such men. He instructs us to turn the spotlight on and recognize faithful men. And this doesn't mean that we create, you know, statues to put out in our hallways of these different men. It means that in a world full of faithlessness and cowardice and mankind seeking their own pleasure and their own fortunes and their own fame, there are these wonderful exceptions, men and women who follow the Lord and who follow the Lord well. Godly leaders in the church who give them themselves for the purpose of the gospel. They pour out their lives for others. They make sacrifices for God's people. And these people live in humility. They live with eternal perspective. And they're faithful in years of service to the Lord and to his church. And these faithful servants of God are, of course, not to be worshipped. And any true believer worth their salt would not uh, would not worship a man or would be able to discern what idolatry is in this case. But Paul instructs the church at Corinth to recognize and honor these faithful men, these faithful folks, acknowledge them, respect, and even, yes, emulate them. Emulate these people who you look up to, who, who are actually walking a faithful life before the Lord. Scripture could not be more clear. If they had lived their lives as an example then there's absolutely nothing wrong with acknowledging the pattern of their godliness in their lives and doing the same. Looking to them for advice and for leadership. Know what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. I'll read it for you here. He says, But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love, because of their work. Scripture is very clear that when there's a faithful person in the body, we are to honor them because of their love and because of their hard work. And Jesus designed the local church and his divine design for the church is that he exalts and humbles and gifts the faithful in that body of Christ to be leaders. And therefore, we should take notice when he uh, puts someone who is gifted in that particular place of leadership. I believe it's obvious when someone is truly seeking the Lord. They're walking in humility, in service. They're submitting to God. They're accountable to leadership. And many times we don't get to see someone's true colors until we actually see them in a position of, you know, either correction or uh, if they're asked to submit to certain things, then you kind of see things bubble to the surface, don't we? And, and so we should always keep our eyes uh, open and aware of, of those people in the church who could be leaders and help others grow in Christ as well. And, uh, you know, we all know men and, and women who can, who can fake this sort of thing for a period of time, or they can appoint themselves to a position of leadership or authority without any accountability. And, and might I just say that most false teachers today are those type of men and women, the ones who are self-appointed, and they have no accountability, and they just get to say whatever they want to say, and, and droves of people will follow them, because what does the Bible say? 
they get their ears tickled. They get, they get to hear what they want to hear. And so they just flock to the, to the false teachers in that, in that regard. So um, discernment is necessary. But when someone truly walks in this manner, remember it is Christ who calls, Christ who equips and appoints them, and we should acknowledge that fact. They should actually have a place of honor among the people. And not only that, but once again, we all submit and we are all accountable to God's men. Now, this is another area that, uh, that I just want to point out very quickly. If you'll jot down Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. The writer of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Listen, this is a good thing. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So that they will do this with joy and not with groaning. For this would be unprofitable for you. Now he's talking about a certain attitude toward your leadership. In other words, pastors and elders cannot do what God has called them to do in your life and be watchful over your souls if you're constantly pushing back against them or you're unwilling to submit to the way he set up the local church. All right? I assure you that as the pastor here, I know that I will give an account before Christ my Lord for how I lead all of you as the, the members of this local church. That has been something that over the last several years has weighed heavily on me as I consider that. And one of the reasons why I am committed to getting God's word right above all else is because I don't want to stand before Christ and him say, what in the world were you teaching? That had nothing to do with my word. Amen. And so I take great pains to get it right and, and to do the things that I feel like is going to help me stay accountable to other godly men and also lead you in a way that uh, is honorable to Christ and to his word. Um, I'll always tell you like it is. I'll always make the hard decisions, even if it means that, you know, you might get mad at me and leave over it. I'll point you to what God's word says with no apology. Uh, I'll do it in love. I'll do it in love, but I will point you to God's word with no apology. I will hold you accountable if you endanger yourself or your family spiritually, and I will certainly uh, hold you accountable if you endanger other folks in this local church uh, and, and threaten in some way to lead them astray. That is my solemn duty as a pastor in this church. The sixth way that a church loves is this. Love shows hospitality. Love shows hospitality. And uh, in verse 19, it says, The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca, which is also Priscilla, uh, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that's in their house. So they open their home to have a uh, house church in their home. All the brothers greet you. So you see, when a church is operating as Christ intends his church to operate, the love extends beyond even our own walls here in this church to other like-minded churches as well. We recently, not too long ago, have had two different kind of get-togethers with another local church, like-minded in doctrine and all of that. And uh, that was a wonderful time together. That's one of the reasons we do that. We're to wrap our arms around those who, who we know to be genuine believers in order to instruct and encourage them as well. We get to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. We open our homes to one another and to other believers and seek to help and encourage and instruct one another uh, in the context of our lives and in inviting people in our lives. This is why we go to conferences. This is why we attend expository workshops and learn how to exposit God's word together. This is why, as I said, we join at times other churches in the community for worship. The body of Christ should be hospitable to one another 
And if a local church is like-minded and biblical, then we should greet them and serve alongside them and help them any way we can, just like we are, have purpose to help this other church plant in town, Heritage Bible, uh, Heritage Church Tulsa. We want to love on them and, and encourage them as they, as they seek to serve the Lord as well. So there's a biblical mandate to do so, whether our American church culture uh, wants to acknowledge that or not. In Wyoming, it was a whole different, it wasn't Bible Belt Christianity. Wyoming was very different in that we would often get together with churches that were 20 miles away, 30 miles away, and we'd get together and have dinners and singing and all this stuff. And that was kind of the way I was raised in getting together with other churches. So um, when, I, when I decided that, hey, let's get together with another church on a Sunday morning, some people looked at me like, a, as they say, a calf looking at a new gate, right? They just, uh, they didn't get it. But look, this is, they're the body of Christ, okay? Some of you guys just thought about that. I saw the, I saw the delayed reaction. Finally, number seven, love showers affection. Love showers affection. Now, here's what he says. Don't get overly excited, okay? Greet one another with a holy kiss, Paul instructs. Uh, now, very clearly, this was a cultural thing, so don't go smooching me. I'm just going to tell you that <laughs> right away. This was an acceptable form of showing Christian affection in their culture, but what about ours? Because of how insane our world has gotten, and people don't know uh, which bathrooms to go in and whether or not men can have babies and that sort of thing, right? We, we have all that kind of stuff going on out there, just mass confusion. Uh, any form of affection can be twisted and perverted in our modern-day society, and we are to be wise as believers in how we conduct ourselves with, uh, with one another and with folks in the church of the opposite sex. Um, in our modern church context, older women should and can show affection towards their younger Christian sisters. Um, and, of course, older men should show proper affection for their younger brothers in Christ. Uh, men and women, no, no, uh, no cross affection in that regard. That's how we honor the Lord. If I come up to give you a hug, gentlemen, or you want a fist bump or shake hands, whatever, let me know. Sometimes there's a good Christian side hug that goes on with the ladies. And uh, if that makes you uncomfortable, just be like, Aunt, stop it, not comfortable, whatever, right? My daughter hugs like, like a, kind of like a dead fish. That's how she hugs me. But uh, she gets hugs anyway, all right, because she's my daughter. But I think great discernment should be employed in such matters, and each person should express what they are and are not comfortable with in the context of the local church. And uh, just, just be certain of who you're showing affection to uh, and the proper amount of affection, right, uh, in the context of the local church. And I think that's a very healthy thing. Um, make it a point. Here's how you show affection, folks. Make it a point to show up, to be a part of the family. Nothing communicates, I don't really care about you, like, you know, I'm going to come once every six weeks. Like, you, you don't really, it doesn't really communicate your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ if you're not willing to be a part of their life. And what shows affection the best way is spending time with one another. Amen? Spending time with one another. Make it a point to show up. Be a part of the family. And um, come to events, to fellowships, to Bible studies. And I know it's really hard on some of you introverts. I have like three of them in my family. And it can be really hard on the introverts. I get that. Um, but biblical Christianity does seek to love one another and show affection to one another. You just have to tell us. When we set up like little introverts corner, maybe you can wear a sign 
that says, don't hug me or I'm good with a fist bump or whatever the case may be, and we'll work through that. But there's really no way around it. We have to make an effort and even step outside our comfort zone to let our church family know that we truly care about one another. The time we spend together outside of this place is often what forges fellowship and friendships in a way that nothing else can. When we go to Colorado together and uh, we spend time in Colorado, we'll do that next summer. We'll take a church-wide family vacation to Colorado. Um, it's, it's incredible and uh, what a wonderful time together to fellowship. And, and we do other things closer to home. The men are going fishing, Lake Texoma. The ladies are going to do a, an outing at some point and maybe, I don't know, do what ladies do. I don't know, I, whatever you guys want to do. And uh, you'll, you'll figure that one out. But men, we like to fish and punch things and, you know, set things on fire. And so we're going to do some of that, okay? Um, but we have to be willing to pour into one another's lives. And the passage and Paul's letter to Corinth ends... As it ends, he validates it by signing it with his own hand. So most of the time there was someone who was writing stuff down as Paul would dictate it, as the Spirit led, and, and this person would be writing, and then Paul would sign his signature. And, and as he says here, like he affirms that it's him. This is my hand and my writing. I'm Paul, and validating that um, message, affirming that I wrote this letter to let the church at Corinth know that, yes, you guys are really stinking on this love stuff, okay? And you really need to get your act together. He says, if you're a true Christian, you will genuinely love the Lord. And if it's not so, you will face eternal condemnation. That's, I mean, he's putting that exclamation point in verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. Now, that word Maranatha, a lot of people yell that. Um, and, and, and it means come Lord Jesus, right? We want to pray for the Lord's return. But also um, here it seems to be in the context of more of a prayer for justice in Paul talking about those who have infiltrated the church and who are actually hurting the body of Christ because of their lack of love. They're, they're wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing. And so I believe what he's saying here is come Lord, come and remove those in your house who do not truly love you, those who would divide your people, those who without love have no love for you or for one another, he's saying, come and remove them. Bring your justice. Let, let judgment begin in the household of God. And I believe that's what Paul's kind of pointing to here. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So to his true brothers and sisters, he summarizes the entire letter again by affirming his greatest hope for them that Christ's grace may be lavished upon them, that they would all be certain of his love for them, grounded in the person of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that is the, that is the tie that binds among all of us as the body of Christ. Amen? So there we have it. The completion of Paul's first canonical letter to the church at Corinth. And we say a hearty amen. All right, let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.